Good afternoon. It's Monday the 24th of July 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me today by video link, we've got David Scott and Mark Anderson. Welcome to the programme, both. Now, David, we're going to get kicked off uh, with climate change. And, uh, well, the BBC this morning uh, going absolutely nuts about uh, fires in Greece and so on, uh, even suggesting that forest fires have been taking place for decades. <laughs> Decades. Well, in the B BBC land, a decade is, is, is the maximum scope of their understanding, I suspect. Uh, some people do better. Uh, we go here to New South Wales Parliament. Uh, the, uh, uh, we've got the Honourable John Ruddick uh, speaking his first speech. Uh, he's a new member of the Legislative Council. Um, and he's also a member of the Liberal Democratic Party. Now, for viewers in Britain, this is nothing like the Liberal Democrats we have here in that they appear to be both liberal and democratic, so nothing like our version. Um, and he gave a very libertarian speech. In fact, he was quoting Muddy Rothbard and, and uh, anarcho-capitalism towards the end, so that's maybe a first in a major parliament. Um, but the, but he, was, uh, he had something very interesting to say on the global warming crisis. Another reason libertarians don't like big government, because mankind is from time to time, subject to irrational, harmful mass delusions. Especially when melded with big government, COVID is merely the latest case study. One of the benefits of separating church and state was that if a religious grouping did get delusional, at least the delusion was contained and not magnified by state power. Let me tell you the story of uh, William Buckley, an escaped convict who was warmly adopted by an Aboriginal tribe in the Geelong area. Buckley spent 32 years living in the Australian bush and then walked into the Port Phillip Bay colony in the 1830s. Buckley expected to be punished by the English for, for being an escapee, but the English were fascinated by his account and employed him to foster good relations with the Aboriginals. Buckley then wrote a gripping book which contains an episode where his tribe and the surrounding tribes were in a mortal panic. These tribes held the, held the supernatural belief that the world was held up by a powerful man who used ropes to keep things in place at the end of the world. There was panic because the word had gotten around that the strong man was getting weary. And if every tribe didn't immediately send him all their food, tools and weapons, the world would definitely implode. Buckley's tribe and the others around furiously obeyed and handed over everything they had and then raced atop a mountain, hoping it might provide some protection if the implosion came. Buckley wrote of this episode, but who the old juggling, receiving thief was, I could never make out. However, it is only the same sort of robberies which was practised in other countries of what is called Christendom. Buckley was correct. Mass delusions are a universal phenomenon. The pyramids of Egypt are impressive, but the pharaohs likely concocted an apocalyptic delusion to con countless poor souls to spend their lives in backbreaking work to build fancy graves. Half a million, sorry, half a millennia ago, the then all-powerful church con convinced the peasants of Europe their relatives were suffering in hell. But if they handed over money to the church, then they'd get an escape pass. As soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. This indulgence scam went on for centuries. It was a powerful elite tricking and robbing the poor and laughing in luxury. Now I know this is not a view that I know this is not the view of this chamber, but please hear me out because occasionally minority positions are vindicated with time. Is the global warming orthodoxy yet another mass delusion turbocharged by big government? And this is the question. Um, this is a point we've made, we've had made before. Is the global warming scam actually just uh, a means of buying absolution for the guilty um, and based on nothing substantial at all? Um, now, he, he goes on to raise other issues about it, one of which uh, was actually picked up separately by Lawrence Fox here, who spotted a, a, a sticker on a lamppost, and the sticker said, if you can't question it, it is not science, it's propaganda. This is one of the points that John Ruddick was making. Um, and of course, we're seeing propaganda, and we're seeing propaganda 
nightly on the weather forecast. So we have here someone um, calling out the BBC. He's saying broadcasting misinformation daily, and he advises question everything. And we see here the temperatures on the BBC chart and the actual temperatures recorded that day. And uh, 45 degrees C becomes 36, um, for example. And this is uh, obviously a completely different picture. And one reason why that may be the case here is reported by Robin Minotti. Um, he's saying the heat wave scam is exposed. Um, hysteria started when climate sensationalist media outlets in Germany and elsewhere uh, uncritically cited a sloppy and manipulatively formulated July 13th report from the European Space Agency that first referred to air temperature, but it then went on to say that it was in fact referring to ground surface temperature. Um, the European States Space Agency issued a vague clarification explaining the difference between the surface and air temperature at two metres above ground, yet it continued to mislead. Quote, land surface temperatures is how hot the surface of the Earth feels to the touch. Air temperatures, given their daily weather forecast, is a measure of how hot the air is above the ground. It did not bother to mention how the surface temperature is much hotter than the two metre air temperature. So it's quite possible that we are being grossly misled here, and we should certainly be aware of that risk and question the stats. Um, now, the interpretation of the stats with all the red weather maps, that's not playing well. This has now been widely mocked. Uh, it's even made it onto the Mail Online, uh, who report that uh, BBC viewers are seeing red over misleading maps that appear to include Britain amongst the European countries experiencing scorching temperatures, despite the fact that it is not scorching in the UK. In fact, it's really quite poor and not very warm at all. Um, how is this playing out more generally? Well, the politicians aren't interested in any of this. They have their belief, they have their new God, and they are running with it. Uh, so here we see, amongst other forms of insanity, one from Scotland, the SNP, brackets Green Party, plans to ban the sale of homes with gas boilers. So this is, this is going to mean if you've got a house, it's going to be an absolute millstone uh, unless you have a lot of ready cash. Homeowners looking to sell may have to pay up to £10,000 for a heat pump. From 2025, properties need to be Energy Performance Certificate Rating C at certain trigger points, including sales. So if your home is older, you will not be able to sell it at all unless it's upgraded at vast expense. This will incidentally create uh, vast areas of slums. So well done with the SMP on that. And um, I, I want to finish this section with an illustration that the people who are pushing this are not that clever. You remember the, the uh, propaganda triumph that was the dancing nurses on TikTok, where we could see that they had nothing to do and all the hospitals were empty in the middle of an alleged global pandemic. Yeah, that didn't go down well. So what are they doing? Well, let's get the nurses back and let's get them dancing about climate change. Uh, cringe alert here, this one's difficult to watch. Uh, there you go, and uh, if you're looking for a Staying Alive parody, I personally recommend 9-11's A Lie, not that one. Uh, indeed. Okay, thank you very much for that. I don't really know what to say about that. There's not much to add there, really. So let's move on then to uh, online safety. Uh, and, uh, well, 
This is the graphic that the uh, Ofcom was pushing out uh, this morning. Uh, this is, you may, if you think back a few weeks, uh, remember this uh, organization, ACE, um, and uh, they've released a case study on this. So what are they saying? They're saying that analysts from the accelerated capability environment help increase knowledge to inform future policymaking from Ofcom. So uh, they're due to gain new regulatory responsibilities, they say, uh, under the online safety bill, as everybody knows. Um, but uh, so they are aiming to keep users safe, of course, um, from any unapproved information under the guise of child protection and combating fraud. That's the, the normal thing. So anyway, with ACE, they've published uh, in the last few months a couple of uh, papers here. One is called User-Generated Content-Enabled Frauds and Scams, and the other one is called Illegal Harms. Uh, and these have been uh, produced in preparation for this new uh, partnership. So they have established this relationship with ACE. Um, let's just remind everybody what ACE is. Well, of course, it's a program of Kinetic, and Kinetic is the defense company. So let's remind ourselves what they said about this. The accelerated capability environment solves rapidly changing digital challenges facing law enforcement and national security agencies. But if you think back a few months, we may, we're making the point that ACE is now working with the National Health Service. So that goes a bit beyond law enforcement and national security. Uh, and now we're into uh, online safety. Well, th there's clearly a connection there with uh, national security. At least the government uh, tells us there is. Uh, they say we bring together expertise from industry and academia to innovate collaboratively and create mission impact at pace, typically weeks and months rather than the months and years typical of large delivery programs. Uh, and they say we are a home office capability within the Homeland Security Group that was founded in March 2017 with an initial priority to help solve frontline challenges in areas of communications data and lawful inter intercept. So this, uh, David, this perhaps gives us a clue as to what's going on around the online safety bill, because we're talking about uh, Ofcom, which is to be the new regulator, getting involved and language being used like Homeland Security Group and uh, what's that, lawful intercept and so on. This tends to give us a clue as to just exactly what's being built. Yes, it is. And, and the same language keeps cropping up both sides of the Atlantic. And I understand actually in the Third Reich as well, if you translate the German for the equivalent department, it was the Department of Homeland Security as well. Um, and the underlying, the underlying assumptions here, that the people themselves need to be watched by the state because they are inherently a threat. Everyone's, everyone's suspected and um, everyone needs to be monitored because an unmonitored citizen is a dangerous citizen. Uh, well, that's absolutely correct, but we don't need to worry. This might only be a short-term problem because, of course, the issue uh, of online safety and literacy around online safety, of course, uh, may disappear in the not-too-distant future. Let's just give you a clue as to why that would be. Uh, this is uh, from Litchfield Live, and Litchfield School achieves its online safety accreditation. Uh, so this is good piece of news. Uh, and, uh, well, this is the organization which is giving these out to schools, the, uh, an organization called National Online Safety. Um, and, well, we can be sure that they're starting extremely young. So this is all about training teachers uh, and parents and school governors into how to present online safety to children. And so, for example, I've just put one example on here, annual certificate in teaching online safety for early years. So we've got to get the patient young, David, and make sure that they understand how to, how to uh, discern for themselves what is uh, a trusted source for information, what is disinformation, uh, you know, and so on. Got to get them as early as possible. Well, this is right. I mean, the, and, and the basic principle is we're not teaching them to have discernment, to be able to make up their own minds as to what is reliable, what is reasonable, what is rational, what is logical. No, no, no. It's the source. It's all about the source. Do we trust the source? Is it the BBC? Is it the government? These are the, tr the sources we're meant to trust. Really, the ones that lied about COVID and locked us down and started all the illegal wars, those ones we're meant to trust. The ones that are lying to us about climate, those ones we're meant to trust. So this becomes, because this is how it's being portrayed, this becomes uh, indoctrinating children to prevent them engaging in critical thinking. Uh, that's absolutely the case. Uh, now, of course, in the United States, uh, the situation isn't quite the same because there doesn't seem to be, of course, they've got the First Amendment. There isn't uh, uh, the same legislation being pumped through. 
but nonetheless, people are receiving on the receiving end of censorship. Uh, so let's just uh, bring RFK Jr. on. He was giving uh, a statement to the House uh, last week. Let's just have a quick listen to this. After I announced my presidency, it became more difficult for people to censor me outright. So now I'm subject to this new form of censorship, which is called targeted propaganda, where people apply pejoratives like anti-vax. I've never been anti-vaccine, but everybody in this room probably believes that I have been, because that's the prevailing narrative. Anti-Semitism, racism, these are, are the most appalling, disgusting pejoratives, and they're applied to me to silence me because people don't want me to have that conversation about the war, about groceries, about inflation, about the war on the middle class in this country that we need to be having. Now I wanna say something I think that's, that's more important and it goes directly to what you talked about, ranking member, which is the, the, the need, the, the, this toxic polarization that is destroying our country today. And how do we deal with that? We are more, this kind of division is more dangerous for our country than any time since the American Civil War. And how do we deal with that? How are we gonna, every Democrat on this committee believes that we need to end that polarization. Do you think you can do that by censoring people? I'm telling you, you cannot. Now, of course, uh, that was uh, he was discussing his running for president, and that was in the that, that was the context of that particular comment. But uh, nonetheless, of course, it's not just him who is on the receiving end of the censorship, David. And uh, we've got to keep in mind and remember that this is a widespread widespread problem. And while it's very useful for people like RFK Jr. to be talking about this, um, it, it, we need to keep the focus on the broader issue. Yes, I mean, I mean, it is is clearly, and we've seen this in the UK via banking, for example. More on that later. It's very clear that the people who are in the political limelight are uh, exposed to a level of censor censorship which is more, not less, uh, than than the average citizen, um, and they are hugely attacked if they if they step out of line. Hence, the one note nature of our political discourse at the moment. Um, but it's it, it does apply to everybody. It, it can come for anybody at any time. You just need to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, which is what it's like to live under fascism. You're mostly okay, and then all of a sudden you're not, and there's no well, there's no rule of law for a start, and there are no rights. Yes, indeed. Okay, thank you for that. Um, let's bring Mark onto the program, Mark, and uh, let's get a, an update on the uh, uh, IHR, the health regulations from the World Health Organization. Yeah, this is just the um, you know standard following through that UK column does to keep people informed about this all important topic. Of course, as we've said, one of the most tragic things that could happen would be for a full-fledged pandemic treaty or instrument to be passed with all the inherent tyranny that it could hold. And the IHR, the international health regulations could be even worse as we've heard. This uh, site we're showing here, Governing Pandemics, uh, this is a, a newly discovered site that seems to have a lot of concise and accurate information. I'm not sure about its political bias so much. It's governingpandemics.org. Kind of a strange title, Governing Pandemics. I thought pandemics are something you prevent or whatever. Anyway, it says the timeline of efforts to strengthen global pandemic preparedness and response in light of the COVID-19 crisis. And then moving on from there. Uh, we have basically the outline of what's going on. Uh, what just wound up 17 through 21 July was the sixth meeting of the uh, inter intergovernmental negotiating body of the WHO and continuation of meetings of the drafting group. And what's basically happening as we speak, ending today, 21 through 24 July, the joint plenary meetings of the intergovernmental negotiating body and the um, uh, IHR group the working group of the IHR. And coming up very soon, uh, basically today through the 28th of July, the fourth meeting of the um, IHR um, World uh, Working Group, excuse me. 
And then in September, we have more meetings, September 4th through 6th, additional IMB session and drafting group. IMB, of course, is the Intergovernmental Negotiating Body. The 20th of September, the UN high-level meeting on pandemic preparedness, prevention, and response. That's a pretty big one there, September 20. I believe there's one more we can announce. Uh, viewers can take notes of these things to get involved if they so choose. The, uh, the 2nd through the 6th of October, the fifth meeting of the working group of the International Health Regulations. And those regulations, of course, were first hatched in the late 1960s, updated in 2005, and now they're really being fine-tuned according to WHO critics, including James Roguski, a WHO in-depth researcher out of LA, and Scott Tips of the Codex Alimentarius, who heads up the National Health Federation. He's looking into, into these things too a little bit. And here we have a little bit more information. This is from Roguski's website, jamesroguski.substack.com, R-O-G-U-S-K-I. He even says that you can call him at his U.S. number. He's very open about it. That's 310-310-619-3055. He's comfortable with that. And it says here briefly, thousands of people around the world are working to expose the truth about the WHO itself and to raise awareness of the people and their nations regarding the pandemic treaty and the proposed additional amendments to the IHR regs that are currently being negotiated. I just gave the schedule for most of this year, as well as the amendments to the IHR, which were adopted in May last year and can still be rejected, as I underlined, by every nation on earth, but only if we take action before the end of November this year. And as I mentioned before, um, when the WHO doesn't hear anything from the population or from politicians that disagree with the direction they're going, they assume that that's consent. That's just the way it works. Uh, now, this next slide that's pretty much just winds it up here, uh, we're showing the delegates. There's Brit uh, Britain's chief delegate to these negotiations for the um, pandemic treaty. His name is Will Quince. That's his photo to the left. And America's chief negotiator, is the head of Department of uh, Health and Human Services, Xavier Becerra, shown to the right. Just a quick note for familiarity's sake. And going from there, I think that just about winds it up in terms of the essential information, just to keep viewers updated. And they can get involved, of course, there's still time, especially before November. Yes, brilliant. Thank you, Mark. So November is a key date then uh, for what's happened up to this point in getting that rejected. Uh, so we'll encourage people to get involved in that. Now, uh, if you like the UK column, you'd like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, there are options for you to join as a member and you'd be very welcome to the community. Uh, or you could pick something up in the UK column shop. Uh, but please do share any material you find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Uh, and David, uh, we're just going to mention uh, one article here. Yes, a beautifully written article uh, that's that's really useful on the subject of uh, of migration and immigration, and and it's so rare to find a good article on on this subject. Uh, this is by Irene Lohost, and it's on our website now, um, and it looks at all of the arguments surrounding this um, with a calmness that's really ref ref refreshing. So I would encourage people to seek that one out. Um, yeah, and, and, and if it, so, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold uh, on. So that's called uh, let's talk about France's story of mitigation for uh, people that are uh, just listening to the program today. Uh, next, I just want to tell you what's happening at one p.m. tomorrow uh, on at ukcolumn.org/live, uh, and also on Thursday we're going to have uh, some of the presentations from uh, the net the Great Net Zero debate, which Sandy Adams held at Glastonbury Town Hall on the seventh of July. Uh, many of you haven't seen those. Um, and so we're just going to we're going to show those at 1 p.m. tomorrow, and then more of it on 1 p.m. on Thursday. Uh, but David, coming back to you, then a quick advertisement for Free Our Streets. Yeah, sorry, I was jumping ahead there. Yes, Free Our Streets. We have uh, a meeting in Edinburgh uh, on Tuesday, the 25th, at uh, the Augustine United Church in uh, King George Fourth Bridge uh, in Edinburgh, um, and uh, that's seven till nine. And this is part of the Free Our Streets campaign. And just uh, a quick look at what Free Our Streets as part of the Together uh, campaign is actually about. Well, amongst other things, they want to safeguard open debate and free speech. And they want the freedom to congregate and protest. 
And they say that uh, medical treatment must never be mandated and freely given informed consent without coercion is essential. Medical treatment uh, should never be a condition of employment or of participating in society in any way. And amen to that. Uh, indeed. Okay, let's move on then to economy. Uh, and well, the news from Russia then is that interest rates have been put up to 8.5%. Uh, that's uh, an, key, uh, an increase sorry, of 100 basis points. Uh, this is a statement from the uh, governor of the uh, Russian Central Bank. At the next meetings, this is a poor translation, but basically at the next meeting, they're admitting that they're going to potentially increase rates even further. Uh, the increase in domestic demand surpasses the capacity to expand production, she said, including due to the limit, limited availability of labor resources. Uh, and this is a, an interesting uh, thing economically, David, that uh, it's not just the West and not just the UK that's having trouble, or the UK and the United States, having trouble filling uh, jobs. And this has got to be a, a pretty fundamental uh, issue with economies in the next couple of decades, because uh, uh, certainly it's going to drive uh, migration, perhaps. But in the meantime, our birth rate is too low. Birth rate is too, too low. Uh, in the West, um, we're killing between a quarter and a third of all the children in the womb. And uh, we are constructing an economy that uh, has, has people so struggling to survive that large families seem impossible. Um, so there are many reasons why the birth rate is too low, but it's not sustainable. It's a very different, the very definition of not sustainable. Um, we are going to have more and more people depending on fewer and fewer actual productive workers. Yes, and what's interesting is, of course, governor of, the, of a central bank, they, they have the same rhetoric the world over, so it doesn't matter that uh, Russia has a much better productive economy than, for example, the UK. Uh, they're still only thinking about interest rates in monetarist terms. Yes, and, and it's by no means obvious that the putting up interest rates will do anything um, to, do, to improve the, the, the labour pool, because if you need a certain amount of stuff, uh, you want to make your, product, your economy more productive, so you need more investment, more plant and machinery to make each individual uh, worker produce more. So by putting up interest rates, they're going to reduce investment in plant machinery, uh, not necessarily working to the end they claim. No, indeed. Okay, well, let's uh, move to India then. And, uh, and a bit of news here that the Indian government has decided that they are going to ban the export of non-Basmati white rice. Now, of course, we're hearing lots of rhetoric uh, from various people about the fact that uh, uh, the Odessa bombings by the Russians are going to cause uh, a global food crisis. But in fact, this is just another example of it. Now, in this case, they're saying it's because uh, they have reduced harvest this year and they, they have to make sure that they've got sufficient supply for domestic markets. There's been huge demand uh, from the rest of the world for Indian rice. Uh, so uh, let's see, what was it? 20, so first of all, they put a 20% duty on, uh, a tariff on in, in an effort to uh, get people to stop buying Indian rice from uh, from foreign countries, but in fact that that didn't work. So they've just put a ban on it. Uh, in the meantime, of course, uh, wheat prices. Well, the headlines are saying wheat prices are heading north again. Uh, they are a little bit. If you look at the very far right hand side of that graph, nowhere near uh, the kind of peaks we saw uh, in mid 2022. Um, but certainly, uh, wheat that's to be delivered in May 2024. What's that sitting around the 220 uh, mark or so for the price per ton, uh, 220 pounds per uh, ton. So it has gone up slightly, but not quite to the degree that uh, the mainstream media is perhaps uh, suggesting. But in the meantime, of course, we're not seeing the falls. If we look at that graph again, uh, we're not seeing the massive, relatively massive fall in price being reflected in retail prices uh, in the supermarkets. So that's a separate issue. Um, so that's a little bit uh, of a look at economic issues at the moment. But David, uh, this issue of global food supplies, I mean, Patrick was talking about this on Friday. In fact, the uh, impact of the Ukrainian situation isn't going to have a terribly great impact on third world countries or developing countries uh, because most of Ukrainian grain was going to Europe. Uh, but Indian rice, lots of it coming to, to Europe and the United States as well. 
at the fundamental problem here is that we have no food independence. Well, that's certainly a risk. If if international trade breaks down, then we are in a bad way. Um, the 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 impact of the, the the wheat price spike and the supply disruption from the Ukraine was never as great as it was uh, being advertised. Um, I was speaking to people in in the industry importing uh, wheat into the UK to make bread, to make flour, and to make bread. And they were remarkably relaxed about this whole thing. They said, no, there's plenty of supply. Yeah, we've got to pay a bit more for it, but there's plenty of supply. Um, so it didn't seem to be the crisis it was being advertised as, even, even in the worst moments. Yes. Uh, well, in the meantime, we've got a couple of uh, little graphics here um, on CBDC. Yes, I just wanted emphasize the fact that people are getting this, both protesters and ordinary people on the ground and indeed the cartoonists and the comedians in the mainstream, they are understanding what's happening here. So we see a protester here um, absolutely nailing what central bank digital currency is, right? So all you're spending monitored forever and the eyes are watching you. And it says cashisfreedom.uk. Is is the is a presumably a web URL or something there? So this is this is spot on, and uh, even in the mainstream, partly because of the Nigel Farage issues uh, and all that's come out surrounding it, um, they realise that uh, big banker is watching you. It's not big brother; it's big banker, and, and this is, if anything, <laughs> scarier um, with with your. Um, Conduct, your opinions, your beliefs, your expressed views, being assessed by your bankers to whether you're going to be allowed to have any economic activity, uh, whether you're going to be allowed to buy and sell in this society. Uh, that's, a, that's a very dark area to be going down. That's it, where we're heading. It, it is indeed. Okay, thank you for that. Now, Mark, uh, let's come back to you. And what's Joe Biden up to then? Well, what we're talking about today with the low birth rates and COVID, uh, the abortion issue is kind of wound into this. Um, Biden is preparing to change the rules to attack the pro-life movement. And uh, 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 the pro-life movement and the abortion issue is just sort of the issue of the day with Biden. You know, he would attack the uh, genuine conservative, constitutional conservative movement anyway he could. And this is just another way. He wants to use the HIPAA laws to undermine state laws in those states that have prohibited abortion in a strict way since Roe v. Wade was overturned a little over a year ago. So the HIPAA laws just a year or two ago were our friend. Uh, here, I'll read this next one. The Biden administration is preparing an expansion to the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, or HIPAA, as promised earlier this year, which would seemingly serve to protect abortion and infringe on laws passed in pro-life states. So HIPAA was our friend a year or two ago when Americans would cite it, oftentimes in real time. I did myself. When I would go in a store in California, I could uh, flash a card I had about the HIPAA law, and they could not prevent me from shopping in that Whole Foods store, uh, even though I was not vaccinated. I actually cited that law and was able to keep shopping. So HIPAA protected my um, freedom of consent and freedom of choice with regards to the COVID jab. But you know, but of course now they're turning it around um, and applying it uh, uh, in a pro-abortion way. That is that a woman getting an abortion should have the same HIPAA protection because they're seeing an abortion uh, choosing to have one as, as in equivalency with rejecting a shot. Um, of course, there are fundamental differences that almost don't even need to be explained. But moving on from there, we'll get through this a little more. It is believed that the new rule will protect both women and abortionists from these pro-life laws, claiming that access to abortion is a civil right. There we go again, where Justice Alito proved when he wrote the majority opinion uh, to overturn Roe v. Wade, he proved definitively that it is not a right. You never have the right to take the life of another except in self-defense under certain circumstances. However, others are already preparing to push back while still still more warned that the rule change will open up the Biden administration to lawsuits. That may be the saving grace of this whole thing. Biden may overstep his bounds. Uh, Politico reported, 
moving on, that the Department of Health and Human Services is preparing the final draft of the new rule called the HIPAA Privacy Rule to Support Reproductive Healthcare Privacy under the Office of Civil Rights after Dobbs versus Jackson, uh, Dobbs versus Jackson's Women's Health Organization ruling that overturned Roe v. Wade. Individual states were able to make their own laws regarding abortion, while some states do have laws in place that protect preborn children from abortion. Abortionists, not women seeking abortions, are the ones facing potential prosecution. So the uh, Biden administration is trying to really form a blockade here, and in many in many people's opinions, misapply the HIPAA law. But uh, now this is going to get into a little bit of a um, expose of the media's role with a big pharma as I go along here. Uh, this next one out of Politico, this is the headline. This was a uh, link in the articles I just read. Those were out of WorldNet Daily, WorldNetDaily.net. And from that link, it took us to this article in Politico. Biden's HIPAA expansion for abortion draws criticism and lawsuit threats. And moving on from there, uh, as you read through this, you begin to see these ads, Politico, the next generation of healthcare therapies. And if you look closely, Pfizer's um, logo is in there. And I need not read that text there. We can move on from there to the next. And I enlarged it here, Politico, the next generation of healthcare therapies. So we're reading about what Biden's doing, uh, uh, twisting the HIPAA law around. And then we see that the media and big government and big pharma are all in cahoots with one another. This just happened Thursday, July 20th. Um, Pfizer put on a program uh, in conjunction with Politico Live. Next generation healthcare treatments such as gene therapy may hold the key to effectively treat rare genetic diseases and alleviate future chronic diseases. Of course, the mRNA jabs that Pfizer put out to allegedly inoculate people against COVID are gene therapy, basically. And moving on here, uh, we have, this is what happened. This is how they promoted it. Come discuss how government and industry can work collaboratively to optimize patient care or patient access to gene therapies in a cost-effective, sustainable way. Underlined, we also will explore the opportunities for increased access to gene therapies and how barriers that limit access to gene therapies are missed opportunities to reduce healthcare disparities. So they're really pushing gene therapy in general. And featured speakers, including included to the right, Peter Marks, PhD with the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. So there's a government bureaucrat there. Um, the woman next to him, Joni Rutter, is with the National Institutes of Health. And then um, moving on from there, uh, we have the executive conversation carried on by so Sonal Batia of Pfizer and Tim Hogan of Pfizer in conjunction with Heidi Summer of Politico. And moving on from there. No, that's it, Mark. Okay, okay. Yeah, basically, as you read this thread, as you follow these stories through, what you see is a big government promoting ideas, misapplying HIPAA, in my opinion, and I think that's a well-supported opinion, and using abortion as the current issue de jour for that. And then uh, you read it uh, more and you, you explore it more and you see that the media that's reporting all these, not World Net Daily, but Politico, which was just bought up um, by a Bilderberg entity, um, you, you see how they're collaborating with government and, and big pharma uh, to promote these ideas. So, so the, the, uh, the media and, and this, whole, this whole collaboration thing is really quite blatant. You just have to know where to look. Yes, indeed you do. Thank you for that. Now, uh, David, let's uh, come on to a bit of comedy, perhaps, uh, and Justin Trudeau. Yes, we go to Canada. Uh, Trudeau, Trudeau's motorcade has been swarmed, and one of the patterns here is you'll watch the language. It's always talking about kind of uh, wild and uncontrolled animalistic behaviour by the people protesting. That's the language that the uh, press choose. Sworn by protesters, causing him to cut an appearance short. And we have some video.
He was obviously feeling safe and secure, surrounded by the bodyguards. There were a lot of bodyguards. More on that in a moment. And um, one of the interesting things I thought was was how he reacted, because it was like he couldn't see the protesters, and he was he was cooing over the people who wanted to have selfies taken with him, and and apparently the protesters didn't exist. And I thought this was very kind of like gaslighting. You know, he's sending out a message that you're beneath contempt, you do not exist, you're not bothering me, I have no interest, you, you, you basically don't count, you don't have an opinion, you don't have a voice, I'm only going to speak to the people who agree with me. And I thought that was quite gaslighty. Now, the first slide did have a little note that said, have your say, leave a comment, and there had been 1,533 comments. So this is obviously getting a bit of interest in Canada. I've picked out just a few of these comments. So here we have one, John uh, Wesley saying, I'm fascinated by the dichotomy of the Trudeau persona. He comes like an angel of light, but the truth is diametrically opposite to the appearance. That's one load of falsehood all packed into one guy who should really have no power. It's chilling to watch. I thought this was a very astute comment. Chilling is right. His behaviour was strange. It was chilling. Uh, another, uh, Kevin Swife says, uh, he deserves every bit of the treatment and worse. And didn't the man on the um, censor beep earn his money on that clip? He's uh, Canadian history's greatest monster. Never has one person come close to doing the irreversible damage he has done. Again, a very accurate uh, comment. Frida Jones says, uh, how long can you go having this, the comment that you made, how long can you go having to hide me? behind burly babysitters in order to appear in public, yet refusing to step down or allow an honest election, even though you know you're done. People are on to you, the World Health Organization, the World Economic Forum in China, so proud of the people who let the feelings be known. They represent many Canadians who are removing the wheel from over their eyes. Thank you, protesters. And we have a little clip here, a little, a little still of um, Trudeau with what appears to be um, rent-a-bouncer. Um, I mean, they, they, all these chaps with no necks and stern appearances and sunglasses, right? I mean, there's there's many Glasgow nightclubs who would who would who would you know take your arm off to have security like that. Um, and uh, just just to finish off, we have here the Western Standard discussing: Is it in fact narcissistic personality? Uh, he says, well, actually, Justin Trudeau defines narcissism, and this is quoting Jordan Peterson. Um, who said, quote, I try to put myself in the positions of people that I'm criticising. Uh, I said, Peterson, uh, I think he's a narcissist. So uh, uh, Craig concludes, well, Peterson is a psychiatrist, he's a psychologist, by the way, and one who swims against the Moat River as far as gender identity and gender pronouns are concerned. So he is my utmost respect. But it doesn't take a psychiatrist to know that Trudeau is a narcissist. His picture might be in the dictionary. So I, I think people are catching on to Mr. Trudeau in ever larger numbers. Uh, good. Well, this is all. This is good news. People say we don't bring, bring you good news. I think this is a, a good piece of news. But anyway, let's uh, look at some other news now, and we'll head over to Ukraine. Um, and well, here he is. Uh, Vladimir Zelensky has pushed out on his uh, Telegram channel uh, a little piece of selfie video uh, for all his uh, viewers and listeners, uh, and this is what he has to say. Uh, we've already started preparing for next week. Uh, there will be many different events that will def definitely strengthen Ukrainian defense. Uh, so basically, uh, he put this out over the weekend. So when he says next week, he means this week. Uh, he said, I thank NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg uh, for promptly convening the first meeting of the Ukraine-NATO Council 
Now, my understanding uh, is that he was very determined, shall we say, very determined uh, that this meeting of the Ukraine-NATO Council took place. So he went on to say in his uh, Telegram channel, in fact, immediately after our conversation yesterday, a date was agreed upon. Uh, the meeting will be held this Wednesday. Uh, we are also preparing new support packages from partners, everything that brings the defeat of Russian terrorists closer, uh, more air defense for Ukraine, more artillery, more long-range weapons. Okay, well, that's a bit of a problem uh, because weaponry is one thing, personnel is another. So also over the weekend then, uh, this gentleman whose name I don't know off the top of my head, I, I, sh I apologize for that, uh, but he was speaking on uh, Ukrainian television over the weekend and basically said this, uh, the soldiers are running out. So Ukraine, he is saying, uh, has no longer has any soldiers, particularly motivated people. And that was the word they used, motivated. So the, in other words, people that are willing to actually excited about getting out into the field and killing some Russians. Uh, so David, we're in a pretty, or at least Ukraine is in a pretty serious situation. If they certainly have no weapons, they're having to convene emergency NATO meetings to ask for more weapons. But apparently the West doesn't have any more weapons to sell, which is why we're giving them cluster bombs. Um, but uh, the bigger problem, perhaps, is that they don't have any personnel. And this all this all gets to the question is, is this reaching its natural end, right? Whatever you think about the causes of the war and who started it and the influences that caused it. In terms of a conflict, we have a smaller nation against a larger one. We have, um, a, they will reach a point of exhaustion before they reach that point of exhaustion. They want to negotiate. If you compare it to, say, the, fin the Finland uh, Winter War in 1939-1940, uh, um, they, they held out magnificently against much larger forces, but they eventually reached a point where they had to negotiate because if they hadn't, the, a point of collapse would have occurred. Are we coming close to that? I, I mean, the, the, the efforts that, that the Russians are putting in are, are not proportional to the, to the Winter War. It's, it's much less. But nonetheless, there must come a point where Ukrainian self-interest comes down to negotiating, but they won't be allowed to negotiate. This is an impossible position. Absolutely. Uh, so let's bring this on because there's been a little bit of commentary over the last week or so uh, on this in the mainstream press. And first of all, we got Robert Clark here. Now he is uh, uh, described, with, he's, he's from Civitas, the think tank, but he's formerly from the Henry Jackson Society. And he wrote this opinion piece in the Telegraph uh, about a week ago, uh, Ukraine and the West are facing a devastating defeat. Uh, but the subheadline I thought was quite amusing, uh, the prospect of a failed counter-offensive and significant territorial concessions would only embolden uh, Russia and China. So the narrative continues, even though, even in the face of this defeat, let's just uh, look at what he said here. If Kiev uh, fails in its battlefield endeavours to split that land bridge and retake much of its own territory by winter, then vocal calls of territorial concessions for marginal political outcomes uh, will likely become far more prevalent not just in Ukraine, but likely from Western capitals, as so-called war fatigue begins to bite, international stockpiles of equipment and ammunition wither, and politicians begin to worry about domestic budgets ahead of national elections. I mean, I don't think war fatigue is the right term here. It's a recognition uh, that the resources necessary to prosecute this uh, proxy war uh, are running out fast. Uh, but in the meantime, our old friend, David, uh, Mark Sedwell, was writing in the uh, Financial Times, uh, NATO must support Ukraine with clear roadmap to membership. Uh, and his view is this. So NATO should not relax after the Vilnius summit. Instead, in his last year as Secretary General, Jens Stoltenberg should secure three commitments for Ukraine, more weapons now to support this year's counteroffensive long-term support for development, developing the advanced capabilities to repel and thus deter future Russian aggression, and that guaranteed roadmap to NATO uh, membership. So Mark said, well, true to form, David, incapable of actually recognizing the reality of uh, the situation and just continues to push the same uh, delusions. Well, of course, the path to NATO membership is the reddest, the brightest of red lines for the Russians. It's the one thing the Russians will never accept. It's the one policy that guarantees the war will go on forever or until the collapse of Ukraine in the West or the collapse of Russia. Is like, 
Sedwell's not that stupid. He must realise that. Is that is that the agenda? Uh, well, good question. Uh, and just to finish this segment off, I just want to bring this on because uh, the uh, Washington Post here uh, reporting that Ukraine has begun firing US-provided uh, cluster munitions. Uh, so that was published on the 20th of the month. Um, well, then uh, yesterday, I, th I believe this was on uh, the Minist Russian Ministry of Defence uh, Telegram channel, they pushed out this uh, statement on the 22nd of July, 2023, at about midday, uh, armed forces of Ukraine units launched an artillery strike on a group of journalists uh, from uh, Izvestia and RAA Novosti news agencies who were preparing materials on the AFU artillery shelling with cluster munitions close to Zaporozhye region. As a result of the AFU strike with cluster munitions, four journalists were wounded to varying degrees of severity. The journalists were promptly evacuated to uh, field medical facilities of the Russian Defense Ministry, uh, where they're receiving qualified medical care. Uh, went on to say during the evacuation, one journalist from RAA Novosti News Agency died of injuries caused by cluster munition. The health condition of the other journalists is moderately serious and stable. There's no threat to life being provided with all necessary medical care. And I just want to end by highlighting the hypocrisy uh, of the UK because uh, I certainly haven't seen any comment on this from the British government. Uh, in the meantime, the British government pursues its campaign to protect the lives of journalists, not only in war zones, but in uh, so-called authoritarian regimes. Uh, this is just an example from September 2022. UK strongly condemns all attacks on journalists and media workers. Uh, this is a UK statement to the OSCE, but that's only when those attacks are perpetrated by uh, people that we're not uh, 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 are not acting as our proxies. Um, okay, we'll leave that there and let's move on to Scotland, David uh, and Fernethy. Yeah, so this article is uh, launched uh, today on UK columns uh, on ukcolumn.org, and this represents a major step forward in the in the Fernethy story. Um, linking uh, the abuse of Fernethy to the political, uh, legal and judicial establishment in Scotland. It's called Fernethy, the Fairbairn Connections. Um, this uh, next uh, slide here describes how uh, we were showing a, a series of photographs of people who th we thought might be, might be uh, relevant to the, the abuse that took place there uh, to the Fernethy girls, and one of them uh, we report, uh, turning over the next photograph, her reaction was an uncontrollable physical recoil, a moment of horror and revulsion, too strong to be restrained. She immediately broke down. It was not exactly tears. The reaction was beyond tears. She said nothing. She needed to say nothing. Her response was more powerful than words. The Fanetti girl did not know who the man was. She had no name, no knowledge of him, except for the terror his image caused her. The man in the photograph was former MP Sir Nicholas Fairbairn. And when we conclude on this, um, uh, we, we, we look at the connections that we've, we've made and we, we say that it's become all the more vital for the full truth about Fidetti to be revealed so the survivors may have peace and the public may know what was done to their neighbours and in their name. This disclosure must include the role of Sir Nicholas Hardwick Fairbairn QC Robert Henderson QC and the rest of the legal judicial network. Police Scotland, the Crown Office, and those in possession of the relevant facts owe it to the Fanetti girls to reveal what they know. There is no doubt that the true horrors of, of the Fanetti story are just emerging, and this time there must be no magic circle suppression of the facts. So we're looking forward very much to see if we get comment and uh, support for that article uh, from those in power and authority in Scotland. We will keep you advised. Okay, and then moving on to uh, Glasgow. Yes, so it's Glasgow City Council that's, that's dealing with Fernethy, or rather not dealing with Fernethy. So we're looking at a little bit of what's happening in Glasgow. So the Daily Record here uh, report the Scots Hell Hotel tycoons received 25 million whilst 40 homeless residents died. So this is hotel owners Ikram Hussein and Adam Hussein. Um, they own uh, two hotel groups. They received 25 million pounds of taxpayers' money um, and there was a whole series of deaths in the hotels. Now, speaking to one of the mothers of the deceased, uh, Linda, she says she understands many problems have been caused by chronic shortage of rental properties in Scotland. Um, 
She said, I hope the First Minister can move towards giving guidance to all Scottish Scottish councils about minimum levels of care to be applied as a right to all homeless people who are accommodated in temporary accommodation. I don't want to see hotels shut down, but I want to see an end to the drug dens. Uh, She continued, I'm appalled but not surprised at the amount of money that these hotel owners are collecting and the way the council just kept the tap going without taking responsibility for people's welfare. My son was not a drug addict when he entered the Queen's Park Hotel, but he was surrounded by drug dealing and drug taking when he was at a low ebb. Now, the, the issue here is the state is paying to put people into accommodation, which are essentially drug dens. They're, they're paying their accommodation. They're paying the money for subsistence, for subsistence which will fund the drug habit. Right? So they're, they're, they're putting them into this situation. And the state's saying, well, look, we put a roof over your head. We gave you money for food. We've looked after you. We've done everything we, 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 we needed to. And actually what they're doing is killing them. Right? They're putting them into a situation which is so toxic that people are dying. There is a reason why the, the drug death rate in Scotland's three and a half times higher than England. And it's nothing to do with general wealth of society, which is very similar. And by some measures, it's slightly richer in Scotland if you don't take into account taxation. Right? This, this shows just the level of um, callous disregard that's been shown to, 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 to human beings here. Um, now, next question, what is Glasgow City Council good at? Well, it's very good at generating fines for driving in bus filter lanes. So um, they are, they're currently fining drivers in Glasgow uh, £66,000 a week for driving in bus filter lanes, fifth highest in the UK. So they're good at something. They're good at exploiting their own population for cash. Um, and another, another little clip here, and a, a, an example of Glasgow City Council. This is a statement from the leader of Glasgow City Council, Su- Susan Aiken, on Glasgow United's use of council-owned Greenfield Football Centre. Now, we've covered this story before. David Goodwill is a footballer. She writes, David Goodwillie has been found in court to be a rapist. Now, that's a bit deceptive. We'll come to that in a moment. However, in more than 12 years, he's never once shown any sign of contrition or remorse. Any club that signs him is making a very clear statement about his attitude to the safety of women and girls, both in sport and its community. How would it, it would be an outrageous decision, wholly at odds with how community facilities like Greenfield should be run. I've asked officers to look at the council's agreement with Glasgow United, make it clear that I'm ready for the city to walk away. So they're basically saying, if you sign this guy, um, you're going to uh, you're going to lose your ground. Now this is something that's happened multiple times. Um, Clyde essentially lost their football ground because they, they they had him playing for them. Now, the background is he was charged with rape. The charges were dropped. There was insufficient evidence. There was later a civil trial, which he lost. It, there was a finding against him by the civil standard of proof. Um, he was bankrupted by that. This was all, all happened 12 years ago. He's tried to rebuild his life. He's, he's now married. He's got children. He's trying to conduct his career. And he's being hounded by the political great and good in Scotland and not allowed any form of a life. And it just looks a bit, well, wrong. At what point has he served his, has he, has he, has he discharged this debt? If he'd, been, if he'd been convicted of rape, he would have been long ago out having served his time and served his debt to society. But in this hinterland, there seems to be no end to it. Now, uh, there is um, an interview. He's been interviewed um, uh, on, online about the whole thing, and those who wish to hear his side of the story can do so there. Um, we then finish up this piece with uh, Fernethy Residential School. We've raised issue after issue to do with Glasgow City Council's responsibility to the Fernethy girls. They are disinterested in helping the Fernethy girls. They're not, they're not engaging with them. They're not engaging with us. Um, we pointed out that when they sold Fanetti, they did so unlawfully and suggested they should buy it back and do what the legal agreement says they should have done, which is knock it flat. They're ignoring this. They're not standing up for the Fanetti girls. They're standing up against David Goodwillie on the grounds we're looking after girls and, and young women. But when they are responsible, they are responsible for girls and young women. They don't care. Okay, thank you, David. Thank you for that. Now, we're just going to end then with Mark uh, and, well, triple-demic, Mark. 
Yeah, here we go again, right? Uh, they're saying at the Centers for Disease Control, Control and Prevention in the U.S. that um, Mandy Cohen, who's uh, the director of that, is uh, looking ahead and saying we're going to have three bugs out there, three viruses, COVID, of course, and the flu and RSV, she said in an interview. We need to make sure the American people understand all three and what they can do to protect themselves. The spread of all three respiratory viruses is currently low, so it really isn't a big uh, um, you know, red flag right now. But the CDC has begun to detect slight increases in positive COVID tests and COVID-related emergency department visits. There they go again with the positive COVID tests, largely done through tests that um, where you don't really know that you have a actual positive COVID case or not. The testing has always been uh, extremely uh, speculative, and we've always known that someone being declared COVID positive very, very well may not be. So they're going to probably try and ratchet up those tests, uh, those uh, positive test numbers again, that provide uh, a lot of the grist for the uh, revisiting of lockdowns as a potential. And um, uh, we can just kind of uh, wind up here. The World Health Organization recognized. Um, on the 23rd of July, its own 75th anniversary. It was born in 1948. Um, this year marks the 75th of the founding of the WHO. It was founded on a simple but powerful idea that health is a fundamental right of all people. When our constitution came into force in 1948, HIV was still an unknown. Uh, they recognized the 75th anniversary via the 12th International AIDS Society Conference in Brisbane, Australia, by the way. And um, uh, we can move on from there. That's, that's kind of the statement of their philosophy. They're saying new infections and deaths are falling, but not fast enough. We need to continue harnessing the power of science. And we know how uh, capricious that can be from basic behavioral science and everything in between to develop new and more powerful tools to maximize their impact and to continue the quest for a cure and a vaccine. They're talking about mainly HIV right there, a cure and a vaccine. HIV has taught us and COVID and MPOX, which is monkeypox, have reminded us that health is not a luxury only for those who can afford it, but in the words of the WHO Constitution, a fundamental right of every human without distinction. Now go to the next slide except newborn babies. And we've talked a little bit about the low birth rates and the uh, social and economic and political problems that that definitely creates. Um, it says here, uh, who defines health as a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, not merely the absence of disease or infirmity, making health uh, for all a reality and moving toward the progressive realization of human rights requires that all individuals have access to healthcare et cetera, including comprehensive abortion care services. Induced abortion is a simple and common health care procedure. Health care procedure for whom, right? Every year, almost half of all pregnancies, 121 million are unintended. Six out of 10 unintended pregnancies and three out of 10 of all pregnancies end in induced abortion. And this really, in its own way, uh, rips the veil off the WHO. When you look at the ethos of the WHO regarding abortion and how the, the pre-born is given no humanity whatsoever, no even basic recognition of importance, that translates into how the WHO would look at humanity through the lens of vaccines and through the lens of diseases. They basically look at pregnancy as a quasi-illness, as a disease to be cured. Yep. And so the value that the WHO pla places on human life is is magnified through that, and again that that would that would apply to basically all facets of the WHO. Okay. So that really reveals a lot about its character. So yeah. there you go for today. Brilliant. Thank you, Mark. Thank you very much. And David, just very quickly, uh, we'll end with a a final meme. Final slide from uh, a cartoonist Stanley McMurtry of Mark. Um, Someone's in the queue for the NatWest Bank, and he says to the teller, yes, I voted for Brexit. Uh, why do you ask? As he disappears through the trap door in the floor, and he becomes one of the uh, NatWest rejection selection. How many of us are going to be in that category, I wonder?
Yes, indeed. Very good question. Okay, well, that's it for today. Thank you very much uh, for joining us, uh, Mark and David, and thanks to all our viewers and listeners. I'll be back in a couple of minutes uh, for some extra if you are a UK Column member. Um, otherwise, we'll see you on Wednesday. Don't forget uh, the uh, Net Zero presentations going out at 1pm tomorrow. Uh, we'll see you then. Bye-bye.